are going to study the, the first four verses, and we're going to unpack those a little bit this morning, and this will be our primary text as we study this together. I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand with me and read as I read this passage, and then we'll pray and ask God for his help in understanding it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning um, needy, We come to you this morning with all sorts of joy, fears. We come to you with many distractions. It's so easy for our hearts to be tuned and go one way, and our minds to be going the other way. So Lord, would you draw us into you this morning? Lord, we need your divine intervention from the Spirit, so that we may indeed hear your voice this morning, even through the voice of a mere man. And that by hearing, we might believe and obey and live in light of your truth. We thank you that you have given us this word, the Bible, not simply to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you change us for Jesus' sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've come to um, like the idea of standing when we read scripture and then sitting down. And I've always kind of wondered... Uh, why does the preacher, you know, stand up front? Why is he, uh, you know, it used to be they were up atop here, and so even elevated above. And it kind of, it just, it's a symbolic picture even to remind us that uh, as we stand to read God's Word, we're honoring, we're understanding, we're reading it, that God's Word is to be honored above all things, that we should study it with that kind of intensity. And then we sit down as it's being preached Uh, in a way to symbolically say that we are submitting ourselves to the authority of God's Word, and we want to, uh, as Jay said, and uh, you've heard it said before, of sitting underneath God's Word. And so when we come and the pastor, the preacher, stands up front and teaches, and we're sitting down, we're saying we're sitting underneath your Word. God, we want to submit to what your Word has to say. And that's um, what's pictured here as we're in this corporate gathering, and we're studying His Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is unlike uh, many of the other is unlike the other chapters that we see in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 is devoted fully to a single doctrine. In verse, in these 58 verses in this chapter, Paul is giving the most extensive treatment of the resurrection in all of Scripture. The resurrection, so therefore, the resurrection is the context for our passage this morning. So think about it today. The things that we're discussing, they all are revolved around and centered around the understanding of the resurrection. John MacArthur says of this chapter, 
just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all Christianity turns, and without it, which none of the other truths would matter much. And so in this passage, and what we're seeing today in this text, just to give you a little bit more context, um, the doctrinal prob- this problem that the Corinthians are having with the resurrection is not a, um, a doctrinal problem of them disbelieving Christ's resurrection. They're not, they're not disbelieving that Christ raised from the dead, but what they're confused about is their own resurrection after death. Their own life after death. And so they weren't so sure that one day they too would be raised with Him to eternal life. Because this was the prevailing view in the Greco-Roman world and the culture was that after death there was nothing more. And see, they had heard that Jesus had raised from the dead and they had believed in that just like you and I have. But then sometimes we still fear and we still wonder, what's that going to be like? Will that really happen? Is that true? And that's what they were dealing with. And the resurrection proves otherwise. It proves that, that, that this doctrine that Jesus raised from the dead, if He raised from the dead, then we too will raise from the dead. And this is what Paul is getting at. And that's much needed in the church in Corinth, and it's much needed for us today to remember that if Christ died and He was raised from the dead, then we too will be raised from the dead just like Him. Believing the gospel about Jesus is not just to know the facts. That's what we're talking about today, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I've appreciated about what we've been doing and what this church is all about is that's our first thing. We're all about the gospel. And it's central to everything that we do. And that's what this message is about. And that's why I, would, I titled it of first importance. That's why I would have titled it of second importance and third importance and fourth and fifth and last because we cannot move from this. But believing the gospel, like I said, is not just knowing the facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. To believe the gospel is to be shaped by it. In other words, the gospel is worked into. Its truth is invading every area of your life and my life. And that is our life right now, and that is our life to come. And so in light of Memorial Day... Um, as we remember the servicemen and women who have served our country well and have died for our country, and even as we um, think about our, loved, our own loved ones that have gone before us, let's look at these four verses and not be confused about life and death, but to know that the Savior's resurrection, which is the gospel, is of first importance. So great, in fact, that He being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with this understanding of the resurrection. My procedure today, and you'll see this in your outline, it won't be on the overhead, but you'll see it in your outline there, is to advance through this text inductively, and I'll expound on verse 1, but then we'll skip over verse 2 and we'll move on to verse 3 and 4, and then we'll circle back to verse 2 and let all of these pieces aim at that God's Word is warning us against removing from the foundation, the solid rock, moving away from the first importance, which is the gospel. The gospel is our only hope. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul writes, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. In Paul's mind, the best way to teach about the resurrection is first to get them to remember. He says, now. Okay, I'm starting with something new here. Uh, I'm making a transition to my letter, and here we go. And we can just say thank you to Paul for that because he doesn't always make the transitions in his letter so crystal clear. Now that when he puts that in there, now, I would remind you, he's, he's coming to something new. It's not necessarily talking about the things that preceded before, which was orderly worship, but now he wants to move into a new topic talking about the resurrection. And he, um, and he does this um, by saying, we, I need to remind you. He starts with, I would remind you. And like the Corinthians, we are forgetful people. Here are a few examples of, uh, in Scripture, how we see the, the heart of forgetful people, the heart of God's people, and, and how forgetful we are, and why we need to remember. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a warning to the people of Israel not to forget the Lord, not to forget what He had done. Saying that keeping the Lord's commandments are direct result are a direct result of not forgetting Him, or remembering Him. You've got to remember that the cycle of Israel, you guys know this, was they were to um, believe God, or, or they started to disbelieve God and disobey, and so they would fall away, and then God would bring judgment and punishment, and then they would repent and believe again, and then this cycle just continued and continued and continued with them. They turned back to God, and then they would forget and turn away, and then discipline and judgment, and then they would repent and turn back to God. This is a cycle, a picture even of how our lives work. They were so focused, this, the Israelite people, they were so for, focused on their current situation, they forgot that God had delivered them from slavery. They had heard, he had heard their cries, and He had rescued them, and far too often we have this same problem. We look at God through the lens of our circumstances instead of through the gospel. We look at our circumstances. We look, we look through the gospel to our circumstances. The message in our world today is often positive thinking. You've heard that before? If you have, um, if you have these circumstances in your life, you just need to think better about them. Think about your life in a positive way. This isn't the same thing as the Scripture gives us. The Scripture tells us to do something different. The Scripture says, handle it in a different way. It says, look to my Word and then look at the problems that you have in life. Don't look at your life and start saying, well, how can I change this? What positive things can I find out about them? It's to go to the truth first. And so we must help each other get from um, asking the question or get from what in the world were you thinking to what in the Word are you thinking? We need to get to the point where we are asking each other, not what are you thinking about this, but what in the Word are you thinking about? And how is our thoughts remembering and focusing on what Christ has done, what God has done? Another example in Psalm 78, verse 42. It says, They did not remember His power or the day when He redeemed them from their foe. One of the most famous and probably uh, just, it just calls it out just like it is. Lamentations chapter 3. You remember this? Jeremiah is saying, 
how bad. For the first um, 20-some verses, he's talking about how horrible things are. He says something like this. He says, He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he, he turns his, head, uh, his hand again and again the whole day long. But then we get later on, he says this, But this I call to mind, or this I remember, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's a call to remember. And even in the gospel narratives, we see Jesus taught us to remember. We studied that last week when we think about the symbolic act of the Lord's Supper. He's calling us to remember. And so we constantly are forgetting this fact, and we must be intentional. You must be intentional about every day getting up and remembering what Christ has done for us. That's the only motivation that we have for godliness, to live and to move and to breathe the gospel. The Christian life is a call to remember. The Christian life is a call to remember. And so you might be sitting there today thinking, well, people told me that the Christian life was to take up our cross and follow Jesus or to die to self. And that's true. But the problem is we we continually forget that. We hear of the good deeds of the Lord and we forget about it. Have you ever done that in your family? You ever remember like, man, I don't know how we're going to make it this month, how we're going to provide for this. And then you remember Oh, yeah. Have we never had what, haven't we always had what we needed? God continually gives us what we need. And we have to remember what he's done. And that's why we see all these stories in the Old Testament that help us do that. And even the Christian life, taking the Lord's Supper over and over and over again, it causes us to remember and not lose hope. The second half of verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is telling us Paul came preaching the gospel. Now, we know that, there, that, that, this Paul, that this gospel, Paul's gospel, wasn't the only gospel being preached. The New Testament clearly warns that there will be false teachers and a different gospel. Listen to how he, if you flip over, hold your finger there in that text and flip over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says... I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and, what, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I, for, for am I now speaking, or seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have known, for I would have you know, my brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul here is coming preaching something that he didn't make up. It's not his. He came preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, reminding his fellow believers of the gospel. But what exactly is the gospel? 
He came preaching the gospel. And you've heard it said, the gospel is the good news. So what's so good about it? What is the gospel? What is this he's talking about? And asking a church this question, you might be thinking, that's kind of like asking a farmer what is seed. Why are you asking us that question? We should know that, right, in the church. What is the gospel? How do you articulate it? Can you tell it? When new members come and they ask, and one of the questions that we sit down with them and we ask, can you explain to us the gospel? And on the nursery form, if you're serving in, in any kind of kids' ministry, one of the things we ask, can you explain the gospel? Tell us your testimony, yes, how the gospel applied to you and, and, and what God is doing in your life, but can you share the gospel with us? This is important. And from my personal experience, I've grown up in this church. I've been a part of other churches. I've gone to seminary, and I still am struggling, not struggling with, I'm still understanding even more what is it to explain the gospel. What is it? And so I I don't take it lightly when we think of that. And I bet you if we'd ask everybody to write a one-sentence statement about what is the gospel, we'd get a lot of different answers. And so Paul wants to make clear that we know what the gospel is. And so let's turn our attention to verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. When Paul says here in this verse, I delivered to you. This is what he's saying. He says, I'm bringing you an authoritative teaching. This is not of my own. It's not of my own origin. I didn't didn't make it up. But Paul says, I received it. I'm bringing you the same thing that I received. Which is also a picture of the Christian life. That's why we say, when you leave this place, be sent out on mission. What you received... Now go share with somebody else. This is exactly what Paul did in this text and what we're seeing. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. And it's of the highest importance. It's the first importance. Let's look at these three things. There are three essentials of the gospel that we can draw from this passage. Three essentials from the gospel that we draw from this passage. First, he says that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, I could stay there for a long time, and, you can, and we can study just each one of those phrases. Who is Christ? What does it mean that He died? What does it mean? What is sin? What is our sin? And we can stay there and talk about that for a long time, but listen carefully. This is what this means. God has sent Jesus Christ, the promised rescuer, fully God and fully man. That's the idea of Christ. He, he was fully God, fully man, to die the death that we deserve for our sins. Sins are any transgression, anything that goes against God's moral law. The righteous died for the unrighteous, that God might both punish our sin in Christ and forgive it in us. Listen to this passage that you're familiar with. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. It says, But now, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had, over, he had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God the Father, who is holy and righteous and good, whose eyes are too pure even to look on evil, looked at His Son Jesus, saw the sin of His Son's people. That's, that's my sin, that's your sin, resting on His shoulders, and He turned away in disgust. And He poured out all of His wrath all of his anger, his righteous anger on his own son. Jesus died as our substitute, taking the wrath of God that was meant for us. Christ, as it says in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what He's done for us. And only, and only the one that puts their faith in Christ will be forgiven. Now, oftentimes, I think we misunderstand the word faith. Faith is not just believing, uh, believing in something you can't prove. Biblically speaking, faith is reliance. Simply put it this way, when you place your trust, when you place your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the fact that, Paul, as Paul said, Christ died for our sins, or Christ died for your sins, when you put your trust in that, what you are saying is that, God, I rely on the work of Jesus to save me. I'm relying that Jesus would secure for me a, a not guilty verdict before a righteous God. And we deserve a guilty verdict. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we're relying on, we're hoping, we're banking on the fact that God is going to say, not guilty. If you've never done that, if you've never admitted to God that you have offended Him, that you've sinned against Him, and asked Him for His forgiveness, if you've never turned away from your sin and transferred your trust to Christ, the bearer of your punishment, I want to invite you, I want to urge you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and accept His free gift of salvation. You don't have to say a prayer, a special prayer. You don't have to walk down front. You don't have to raise your hand. You just need to, in your heart, in your mind, surrender your life to Jesus surrender your life to God and believe in the saving work of His Son. Second phrase, that He was buried. That He was buried. Apart from the Gospel writers, only Paul mentions Jesus' burial, noting that Jesus was taken from the tree and laid in the tomb. He does that in Acts chapter 13. 
He tells us that we are identified with Christ's death in believer's baptism. We see that in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And this detail is so important, um, as one commentator writes, because Jesus' burial points backward to the reality of his death, but it also points forward to the character of the resurrection. So if resurrection, this topic that Paul is talking on, if it is the hinge or the pivot that everything stands or falls on, the whole gospel, then we have to um, understand that Jesus' death was necessary for there to be a resurrection. He had to have died. He had to have been buried. If If he wasn't buried, then he can't be raised from the dead. And so it's so important when you're thinking about the gospel. If somebody asks you, what is the gospel? This is what you say. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. And then the third phrase, that he was raised on the third day and appeared to the disciples. There's two things I want to point out here. First one is that he was raised on the third day. Jesus is not dead. He did not stay dead. He is alive, and the disciples are his eyewitnesses. The English translations fail to do justice the different verb tenses here in verses 3 and 4. Um, the Greek uses the past tense to describe a single action in the past of Jesus' death and burial. So this is a single event, a single action, maybe with continuing results. But the, but the verb was raised in the Greek is in the perfect tense. And all that to say that Jesus' death and burial is a single event in the past with this continuing effect, but his resurrection is an action that occurred in the past but has lasting relevance for the present. That is, Jesus was raised from the dead and continues to live his life in a resurrected state. Now, this is important because when when these uh, Corinthians are not believing that we too will be raised, yes, we believe Jesus was raised, but do you know that when you're, you will be raised in a resurrected state too, that you will have a new body, that you will live in the same kind of, you will have the same kind of body that Christ has, a perfected body. This is important. And it also points out that the, appearance, the appearances. And so in these verses, verse, verses 4 and then following, it talks about those that Jesus appeared to. And why is that important? Because it wasn't just in their minds. It wasn't just a dream or a vision. It was in person. In the flesh, Jesus appeared to them. And so these men serve as, a, um, as eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. That's why it says in the new church, the churches, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Because the apostles saw him. They were eyewitnesses. That's why we study scripture from men that God inspired to write these things about him. Which leads to the next little point I want to point out, a a phrase that we cannot miss, which is accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures. This is saying that this, everything is rooted in the Old Testament. This isn't something new. The disciples didn't make this up. It was rooted and founded in the Old Testament. In the Jewish faith. It did not contradict anything that the Jews were, that had already known it was a part of that. 
God's word points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I love the way the kids' um, storybook Bible says it. Every story whispers his name, no matter where you are. One commentator said it this way, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in the scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. The gospel is central in all of these areas, and that's why we focus on it. We do not want to get gospel amnesia. Where we forget about what, we've, what Christ has done. That's so easy to do. Now let's circle back as we, as we come to the end here. Let's circle back to verse 2. I don't want to miss that with you. Verse 2 says this, and this is how the gospel is to be applied. I'm going to start... Just so I get get it clear, I'm going to start in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Here we go. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's look at these three phrases. Past, present, and future. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. First one the past tense, which you received. The meaning of this is that you heard the gospel. Nobody believes in Jesus Christ unless they hear the gospel. It comes through hearing. That's what Romans chapter 10 tells us. So what it says here, when it says you received it, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you received the gospel. And so now what do you do with it? What do you do with it? You know that I receive the fact that I am justified, just as if I'd never sinned. You've taken this good news and you've believed in it and you've treasured it and you put it in your heart, as we say in children's church or whatever. It's, have you invited Jesus into your life? Have you invited him into your heart? That's what it means when you say you received it. You've been reconciled to God. And the second phrase here is, in which you stand meaning that the gospel is what sustains us. This is the present tense verb. This means right now. So you received it, and you're standing in it right now. The gospel isn't just for those who are unbelievers. It's for the believer. Remember, Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ, to the church, the family of God. He's writing to us, and he's saying, Listen, friends, if you follow the Lord for a thousand years... You would still need the gospel as much today as you did the day you first believed. And so, so you know how easy this can happen. You, you start saying, oh, well, that's a gospel message. I already believed in Jesus. So you put that on the shelf and you forget about it. And let's move on to other things. And what Paul is saying here is you can't move past that. You have to stand in that. Matt Chandler says this, He says, as a church, we must never move on from the gospel. We must never graduate from the gospel. The gospel provides our ongoing day-by-day motivation to pursue holiness and to experience the reality of what God claims we already are in Christ. Perfect, spotless, and blameless. This is our position. You are perfect and spotless and blameless because of what Christ has done. You are standing in that. So I would ask you, are you firm? Are you standing firm in the gospel? 
Are you getting up in the morning and preaching that to yourself every day? We need to hear this message over and over and over. You need to hear that the gospel is what sustains you. It's not just what saves you, it's what sustains you. It would get, it's what gives you the will to put sin in your life to death. Husbands, without the gospel, you cannot love your, your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, without the gospel, you cannot, you will not have the desire to follow your husband's leadership. Children, you will not have the desire or the ability to obey your parents without the gospel. It's the motivation. It's where we stand. You guys can see where I'm going with all of that. This needs to be our current position. In this church, in your current life, in your individual life, the gospel needs to be your current position. Last phrase. In which you are being saved. This last statement is in the future tense. This is God's future grace for us in Christ Jesus. It is the, that one day when Christ returns, we will completely be, uh, sin will be completely removed from our life. There will be no effects of it in us and in the world around us. And we will finally be completely free. There's this progression of the gospel that we see that's mirrored in Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30. It says this, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. There's this progression of salvation that we see throughout Scripture. And it's just like this. You received it, you're standing in it, and one day you will finally be saved by it. Don't move from there. Remember those things. Focus on those things. Get alone with God every morning and preach those things into your mind until your heart believes them. Until you start singing, until you start rejoicing in the fact that you are new and that you're paid for. That's what that means. Stay there. The second half as we wrap up here, of verse 2 says, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The progression of salvation here, from first believing the gospel, to standing in it, and to finally being uh, completely saved by it, is conditioned by the fact that we hold fast to it. Meaning that you grip it tight, you never let it go. You stay there with it. This is the same thing that the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 when he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How do you know if you're saved? Have you ever asked that question? Are you sure that you're saved? How do you know? I would give you the simple answer. It says, if you are right now at this moment trusting and relying on Jesus to pay for your sins, then you are saved. If you are right now trusting in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection to make you right with God, then you are saved. If you hold fast to that confession, don't let it go. If you don't believe that, then I would ask you to repent and believe that. 
if you don't want to have anything to do with the gospel anymore, then as Paul says here, you, my friend, are believing in vain. Or you have believed in vain. I want to make sure that you guys understand this clearly. Paul is not talking about when he says believing in vain. He's not talking about somebody who has been saved and then they lose their salvation. He's not talking about losing your salvation when he says you believed in vain. What he's talking about here is that uh, if we do not hold fast to the gospel, then we were never saved to begin with. Those who are genuinely saved will hold fast to the gospel. They will hold on to the confession. And as Romans says, once you've been predestined and called and justified, you will be glorified. So there's no question about that. Holding fast to the gospel is evidence that you've truly been saved. And if you're not holding fast to it, then that's evidence that you probably have never genuinely trusted your life to Jesus if you're walking away from it. If that's you today, I want you to know Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Nobody is out of his reach. There is hope, and it can only be found in Jesus. So reach after him. Let me close with this story. As we think about what we're to do and where we are to stand as a church. This is, there is an English village whose chapel had an archway and written on it, it said, we preach Christ crucified. For years, godly men preached there and they presented a crucified Savior as the only means of salvation and sanctification. But as the generations of godly preachers passed, a generation arose that considered the cross and its message old-fashioned and repulsive. They began to preach salvation by Christ's example rather than His blood. They did not see the necessity of His sacrifice. After a while, ivy crept up on the side of the arch and covered the word crucified, and it only read, We preach Christ. Then the church decided that its message need not be confined to Christ in the Bible. So the preachers began to give discourses on social issues, politics, philosophy, moral rearmament, and whatever else happened to spark their interest. The ivy on the arch continued to grow until it covered up the third word. Then it simply read, we preach. This sophisticated church in Corinth, with all their wisdom and philosophy and lofty speech, and speech Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified is the only hope for men and the only thing that gives motivation and power to the efforts of the church. Let's not move from that. We must not forget the gospel. We must not stand on anything else because it is of first importance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, for your word something that we've heard over and over and over again. And Lord, it's so easy to dismiss. It's so easy to, to say, oh, I knew that, and, and not focus in on it and think about it. Lord, that's not what you want us to feel. According to this text, and as Paul has written, we need to remember the first importance. We need to stand in it. We know that it sustains us. Jesus, you're your life, your death, your resurrection is what 
gives us motivation and all the effort is sustained by uh, growing, all the effort to grow in godliness is sustained by what you've done. Would you put that on the hearts and minds of all of us today as we leave this place, as we continue throughout our work week? Jesus, we love you. We exalt you. It's in your name.